Just a warning about this episode of Mount Hopeless. The discussion includes stories and descriptions of violence that may be stressful to some listeners. Hello, listeners. Welcome. You have tuned into Mount Hopeless, the podcast that, at first glance, is about the story of Robert O'Hara Burke and William John Wills, better known as Burke and Wills, or more precisely, it is about the expedition they led across Australia from Melbourne in the south to the Gulf of Carpentaria in the north, a humongous distance of around 3,250 kilometres. But even more precisely, this is a podcast about the ongoing issues that this expedition symbolises to us. Colonisation, environmental exploitation, poor leadership and willful ignorance of Indigenous customs and knowledge of the land. Themes that, in my opinion at least, still echo fairly loudly today. My name is Alana Stone and I'll be your host this week. This is episode two. If you haven't heard episode one, go back and check it out. For this episode, I persuaded my collaborator, Tom Hogan, to let me host, even though I have minimal experience hosting a podcast, let alone producing one, but I gave it a red hot go. I even managed to get a really cool guest. Someone else named a a microscopic worm from the asshole of a rat after me recently too. More about him in a moment. If you haven't heard much about this expedition, you are not alone. I found this story was not as well known as, say, the story of Captain Cook or Ned Kelly, but it is equally compelling. While Indigenous people had lived in and known the land for more than 60,000 years, European settlers had not moved far from the coast of Australia by the 1840s. This expedition was the first of its kind attempted by European settlers. It was well funded, it consisted of 19 men, 24 camels and even more horses. They brought all the provisions you might usually expect like blankets, axes, billies to make tea, camp ovens and cutlery but they also dragged along some bizarre items such as a full-sized bathtub, an oak dining table and a Chinese gong. Despite making it all the way to the southernmost point of the Gulf of Carpentaria, Burke and Wills perished in the desert on the way back, along with Charlie Gray, another member of the breakaway party that made it to the top of Australia. They died in the middle of Australia, surrounded by food in a land that had been populated for many thousands of years. So that's the story. My friend Tom and I thought it would be a great idea for a musical. So we wrote that musical and we were gearing up for our premiere performance in 2020 when the pandemic hit. So now we're making a podcast, mostly for fun, but also because we found this story strangely relevant in these crazy times. Now, let me tell you, this next guest, I was pretty nervous He is one of Australia's most prestigious animal specialists. He's a mammologist, paleontologist, environmentalist, conservationist, explorer and public scientist, not to mention climate expert. He's written heaps of books, including one called The Explorers, and he's just a bloody smart guy. 
Here we are chatting with Tim Flannery about the story of Burke and Wills. Plus, we discuss Tim's fascinating personal experiences of first contact in Melanesia, his thoughts on climate change and staying hopeful in an increasingly mental world. But first, Tim has to work out how to open the door to his own house. Hello. Hi. Hello. Hi, Tim. Oh, apologies, guys. I, I had to do run an errand and then I got locked out of my own house. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I, I, we're renting a house here and the door's just just really stiff and uh, I couldn't get it to open. But anyway. I, see, I hear that happens a lot. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Now, Tom and I had been pretty nervous in the lead up to this interview, so we prepped ourselves with some cool animal facts. Tim was keen to get on with his day, but we, we pushed the issue and, and made sure he knew that we'd done our research. All right. So let's, let's do this interview. So what do you want to have a chat about? <laughs> um, well, there's a few things. Like, first of all, I discovered that there's a greater monkey-faced bat named after you, Tim. That's right. Yeah, That's... one of my students named a bat. It's, it's one of the world's largest bats. It's a huge Flying fox that eats coconuts, believe it or it's not. Got, it's Solomon got Islands. like we'll, we'll put a we'll put a picture up somewhere. It's got like like red eyes and it's like a really cute little thing. That's it's awesome. big. It's black. It's about a meter and a half across the wings. It's a wow. big bat. Yeah. That is a good animal fact. We'll just like, <laughs> yeah, it's like yeah, we're yeah. just trying to think of what's some cool animal facts. It's like this you have the ultimate animal fact. Like Well, that's true. Is just it just recently, one of, is it one of your students that like like it was just shouldn't like it looks like you or anything like that like <laughs> oh no he just um he just wanted to kind of honor me somehow and he was working on this group of animals and he just decided to name it for me so it's good it's nice interesting bat yeah that's what we call a legacy right there yeah it is someone else named a a, a, a microscopic worm from the asshole of a rat after me recently too yeah okay <laughs> well we won't get pictures of that up no no understandably Tim had a few questions of his own. He wanted to know what we were doing and who the hell would be listening to this podcast anyway. So we're, we've written a musical, Tom and I, um, and it's, it's called Mount Hopeless and it's, it was due to be put on at IPAC in Wollongong. Um, last month? Last month and, yeah. and was postponed to next year. Mm-hmm. And so they've given us a budget to, um, well, we was off our backs we wanted to make a podcast in order to kind of continue researching because our area of interest sort of started um, in the, in, with the Birkenwells comic tragedy is what we kind of are yeah. thinking of it as. Um, and it was, a you know, a sort of musical that was funny and and um and a bit of a romp and then we we the more we looked into it the more we realized that it's quite a quite a dark story for um indigenous australians obviously and and also an incredibly relevant story now with um you know people black lives matter and people reacting to um statues being torn down and colonization and the effects uh, mm. on the environment um and i guess we realized that apart from having a, a musical uh we wanted to deeply explore this topic with burke and wills as more of a jumping off point i think it, it is it is a comic tragedy really it's um you know you've got a, a an ignorant leader who doesn't really know what he's doing <laughs> very competent second in command mr wills 
yeah. um, young meteorologist um, who ends up starving to death on a full stomach and describing the whole experience in a letter he wrote to his parents. And One, surrounded by food as well. Yeah, yeah, surrounded by food and with a full stomach but still dying of starvation. Yeah. And then these Aboriginal people try to help out. <laughs> try to say, look, mate, you know, have a bit of food. Have a bit of food. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Like, stop it. Like, guns just, what are you doing? <laughs> it's kind of like, so in a way, it's a, it is, it's sort of, it must have been perplexing to be those Aboriginal people. But, yeah. Um, yeah, um, why won't these people accept help? Why are they, yeah, why are they firing at a yeah, mother? Yeah, why, don't they want the fish? Is it off? What do they think? Yeah. <laughs> even how much, even like in your, uh, in your segment from Wills's Diaries, uh, like uh, you even have Will saying like, this Nardu doesn't agree with me. Like it's very strange. It's feeling, it's feeling a bit weird. It's like, yeah, stop it. Just <laughs> yeah, stop exactly. doing it. Like, you've got, <laughs> right. Or at least like, learn how to cook it. And how to yeah, use like it. just like, <laughs> just don't assume that you know everything, Wills. Like That's just. Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It is yeah. so true. It just resonated so much with me. And um, it's right. <laughs> and, you know, when I, I was um, director of the South Australian Museum for seven years and my office was actually where they brought the um, bodies of Burke and Wills back and laid them out of the skeletons. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, and people were nicking bones from the skeletons and stuff, you know, the great and good of Adelaide had come to look at the remains yeah. and someone would just get a finger bone or something as a memori- um, memoriam. Kind of we also, thing. I think in the, there's a Murgatroyd account that says that they had the bones in a box and they tried to open it for the funeral. Someone had lost the key. That's like, right, yes. yeah. like all the way up till the end, of, like something was, mad. there was like a disaster of a trip. It's Comedy really like, it's, right couldn't get much worse. Yeah. yeah. It's like, I, th- I guess that what, one of the big things that Alana and I found is that we sort of vaguely knew like Burke and Wills is this very sort of vague story. And, um, and it's such a reflection on heaps of colonial stories of like how they're kind of like uh, heroes, but it's a bit unlucky. You're like, this the larrikin culture they're trying anyway. And the more we read into it, just like, they just like Burke was so incompetent and so yeah. arrogant that it really like every step of the way was like bad decisions. We think yeah. like it just seems horrifically bad. Like every- yeah, if you could make a bad decision, he'd make it. That's yeah. right. See, I think I think Burke and Wills would make a great opera. Yeah. <laughs> it really would. It kind of almost needs a Puccini style opera, you know. Totally, yeah. butterfly top, I think so over the top. <laughs> yeah, yes. Burke is just such a flam like he's a great flamboyant character. And it's very hard to see him as other than sort of this like attractive idiot that um is super ambitious and puts everybody's lives at stake for his own kind of yeah. um, notoriety how do you feel like having written a book called the explorers and that was in 1998 um how do you feel using that term today like is it still a term that you feel is is relevant in in terms of colonization and expansion I think it's totally relevant. I think it, it's, um, yeah, it's, you know, you can only, can, did you remember Tepahi's account? Yes. Yeah. The great, yeah. you know, bloody Bay of Islands chief coming out with his sons. He's six foot four, you know, in his feather cloaks and Governor King treats him with this incredible reverence, you know. Mm. And he's exploring, you know. Governor King's got three convicts locked up who are going to be hanged, yeah. you know. And Tepahi said, well, what have they done? And King said, oh, they've stolen potatoes from the government store, you know. Tepahi said, What? He said, yeah, yeah, we're going to kill them. He said, well, they were potatoes to pay. He says, but look at them now, they're shit. You're going to, you're going to kill people with stealing shit? <laughs> That's a barbaric thing. He said, give them to me. I'll put them to work in New Zealand planting potatoes, you know, we'll supply it. Yeah. <laughs> and King won't do it, you know. It's, so okay. it's incredible exploration by a New Zealand chief of Western ways. You yeah. know, it's fantastic. And, and his exploration of Aboriginal culture is astonishing. I don't know whether you remember he's there during a, 
uh, an event happens while he's in Sydney, which is that an Aboriginal elder called Old Blewett by the Europeans, he swapped his name as often these Aboriginal people did with uh, Mr Blewett. Mm-hmm. Mr Blewett had his name. Mm-hmm. So Old Blewett finds out that one of his wives has been having it off with a younger man. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in traditional Sydney culture, what you do is you get the young man up there and you throw spears at him, you know. Mm-hmm. And, of course, he could dodge him because he's a young, fit fella, you know, but eventually he just has to take one in the thigh, you know, because that's the punishment, the cost. So he has to sit there, one goes in his thigh. Blewett goes up to him with his waddy and gets, he pulls his head up and says to him something he'd like, you know, now, look, if you come near my wife again, I'm going to bloody clobber you, you know, that'll be the end of you sort of thing. And he walks off. Mm-hmm. And at that moment, to pa, he says, what? He said, first of all, he didn't get ten blokes to throw spears at once. They could have killed him straight away like that. He wouldn't have been able to jump out of the way. But then he's got him under the nulla nulla and he lets him go. So what sort of people like, yeah, are these? Just consider that a warning. Yeah. Yeah, that's okay. right. Yeah. But to pay, he wouldn't give a warning, you know. He'd be like, bobber, that's it. So it's this tremendous interplay of cultures in that early Sydney where you've got the Pacific Islanders, you've got Aboriginals, you've got Europeans, all trying to make sense of each other. And that, to me, is exploration. In a way, Tim's definition of exploration seems to focus more on instances of first contact between different cultures rather than geographical exploration or expansion. And it turns out that Tim Flannery has some very good reasons for his fascination with first contact accounts, as he has a couple of incredible experiences of his own to share. But before we get to that... Tom asks whether eyewitness accounts are a standard way to approach documenting history. So when yeah. you're when you're depicting like it's like as the explorer is an example is like you you're, you you basically have a few you basically give context occasionally to certain um, voices really but ultimately you you let the accounts speak for themselves like yeah. it seems to be essentially first of all a a way a way that's kind of unproblematic in the sense that you're like yes this is them we can. Yeah use our context now to understand, mm. to mm. like what you were saying, hypothesize yeah. and sort of like yeah. make those kind of judgments. Is that like the, is that, is that kind of like a standard approach as far as historical documenting uh-huh. going? Or is this, was this you going like, this is how I can breach that or? It was, I didn't, I really just took it as it was and tried to build up a body of knowledge about first context so to give you a chance to, mm. you know, to understand it. And, and what, what really drove me in some ways was that I'd been in a couple of first contact situations myself in, in Melanesia. Right. And they were nothing wow. like what I was expecting, you know. Very, very interesting. So is, is, said, that's what that? you that's what you that it spurred you to do the explorers or that's that to give more context? Oh, oh no, to take that particular view of what, yeah. you know, what is what is happening at that that magical moment when two cultures that have been separated by sixty thousand years mm. finally come into contact with each other. Yeah. So when, when, when was that for you? In, in 1984 and 1986 in West Myanmar country in, um, in what, was, what is now Sundown Province. Yeah. yeah. So, what, uh, like, did you come away with any clear I, – I, I guess what, we, what were you expecting compared to how, to how it was, like even like emotionally? Like what, like... Well, there's a sort of a, a superficiality about it that is um, – seems rather normal. So a smile is a smile, you know. An angry look is an angry look. They're they're cross-cultural. They're just human things, you know. A look of confusion is a look of confusion. But the thing that I found difficult was you you meet these dignified old men and you're trying to just 
you know, be hospitable. Try to explain yourself. You don't have any words. And I remember one time I just made a cup of tea and I was drinking it in a tin mug. And um, and obviously people were a bit, you know, just looking. So I offered the tin mug to one of the old men who took it very confidently, swigged it back and then went, bah, threw it away because he'd never had hot water, never had anything hot oh, before. Wow. The burning sensation on his mouth from the tin mug was like a poison, you know. Wow. So kind of like, yeah, it's, yeah. Mm. So yeah, so you're saying like the, the superficiality was e- almost easier to perform in the sense yeah. that it was like you sort yeah. of you sort of a, a judge a kind of like this is what I assume is uh, how to convey some very basic kind of emotions. But as soon as you get to anything yeah. that actually relies on that development, that's you're right. That's an impossible divide, and you can only discover that by getting yeah. it wrong, really. Exactly, and you're constantly getting it wrong. Both sides are constantly getting it wrong. Yeah. So they were very apprehensive about me, why I'd come there, what was I doing, totally confused about what I was doing. I was rather apprehensive of them too. There was a couple of them who had bad bad reputations, if you want. Mm. Um, so uh, I could look at, yeah, I'll tell you the one story that really sticks in my mind. I finally, in the most remote area in 1986, I was working with a young man who um, was a really great young guy. You know, we just seemed to get on with chemistry about we're doing rat surveys of rats and looking for animals and he was catching things and showing me signs and whatever. And animals are a great thing because they understand them and I understand them. You know, it's a common language really. Mm. But um, after about three weeks working together, he kind of said to me, we had an interpreter there and he said, I'd like to, um, I'd like my father to tell you how he got me. And I said, oh, great. Just part of the, you don't want to be part of the family. He said, yeah. So the old man started speaking and um, he said, yeah, we, it took me a long time to build a bridge. We ha- I had to, he said, pull on all of my ropes that I'd created over my life. So we had to pull on every friendship and favour he'd ever done to build a bridge across a river and they were going to raid another tribal group called the Atbalman. And um, Atbalman live in a single big hut, about 40 people in one hut. So they got all of their weapons together and stuff, crossed the bridge and before dawn, set fire around the hut and then stood there with their stone axes as everyone came out trying to club them and kill them before they came out. So he said, we killed them all. He said, then we chopped up the bodies, chopped the legs and arms off and the head off and gutted the torso. He said, just like you do with your possums, I've watched you do it. He said, and then I tied, I tied a torso onto my back, just like you put your backpack on, you know, and I had one arm on one leg here, one arm on one leg here and a head in a basket. And we were heading off back to our, our families to feed them. He said, when I heard a noise in, in a, a baby crying, he said, I looked up in the tree and there was a billum, a string bag with a baby in it, a young baby. And he said, one of the women must have got out of the hut and just had time to put the string bag up before she was hit down. He said, so I came back to our village and my wife was already had a baby and she was breastfeeding and she had enough milk to feed two children. So I gave her this new baby. Oh, that's right. He said, on the way back, as soon as I put the billum around my head and started walking, he stopped crying and I knew he was going to be a good boy. So I took him back to my wife and my wife, I fed her all the meat that we got and she had enough milk to feed two babies. And so he said, here's my son today. And I thought, shit, this guy's going to grab an axe and kill the old man. You know, this is such a terrible story, surely. But the young man just went around and grabbed his father and hugged him and said, I, my dad is such a special guy, such a lovely man, you know. And, and that was a story of affirmation for him of how he got to be at, uh, um, a Myanmar person. Mm-hmm. And for that them that was an incredibly positive story and a wonderful story. 
of, of family ties. But for me, it was something totally different. And you just think yeah. there's a gap here that we'll never, we'll, you know, Yeah, that is, to. first of all, that's the most intense story I think I've ever, like, heard in a very personal account. That is huge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That was one of the most intense stories I too had ever heard. And really, we needed a moment to just sit and reflect. But in my constant need to entertain, I decided in my wisdom that it was time to start pulling out some of my more impressive animal facts. Do you see this stuff as, a, as an animal specialist, as a mammologist, that's the word, isn't it, um, in terms of, of mammals uh, like I, it makes me think of of the sea otter, which I my friend Hannah um, used to we, we used to talk about a lot for some reason. Um, but that you know they they were really beautiful. They they made it for life and had little stones that they mm. held they on hands. to and they hold hands when they're asleep. But then mm. there's also this brutal um, murdering when they respouse that mm. the that the new um, father would then eat the children of the previous. Yeah. And these things in the animal kingdom are very common, I guess, in um, and not so shocking. And do you think in a way you've become acclimatised to that, you know, as being more part of maybe a human history than than we are, you know, in our civilised state today, saying well, it's disgusting that people mm-hmm. would raid a village and kill everyone and blah, blah, blah. Look, at this stage of the game, I am just as confused about where this question is going as you, the listener, are. But thankfully, Tim Flannery rescues me with his brilliant response. Um, Look, in our own lifetimes, our our culture has done the same sort of things. You know, we haven't eaten people, but we've we've killed millions in much more cruel, horrible ways, you know. So the the astonishing thing about that story, if you think about it in an animal perspective, is that the father isn't killing someone else's child. He's adopting it, Mm. bringing it up. It's his own. That's the beautiful Animals don't do that. Yeah. Yeah. It's probably worth like just, we just looked at, we were just looking at your bibliography and we just noticed the thing that like, like the first half of your publications were very like historical based and uh, Mm. European and sediment. And then like after that, uh, you, you, Obviously, you've been focusing so much more on climate change and like uh, using your understanding of the past to sort of like shape visions of the future. Like there was obviously like a turning point for you to be like, like this is what I'm addressing now, and it seems yeah. to be being consistent for like 15 years or so. Mm. What what was what was a big turning point for you in your career to be like this is what I'm focusing on? Oh, it was well, it was partly that I could see what a massive threat climate change was. Um, it was also partly that um, I think I, I got to the point of understanding or a, p- p- where I was no longer so much a practitioner or a curator in a museum or a researcher, but had become a director of a museum. And I realised I needed to turn all of that ethnographic experience, if you want, that I'd had uh, onto my own culture to try to understand my own culture and to try to change it and make it better as much as you can, you know, or at least prepare it for the challenges it's facing. So I think that was the main, the main thing really. So, do, do you understand your own culture better? Like, do you like you? Are you like, yeah, I've. I think I do. I mean, I've had a lot of good experience. I mean, apart from all that stuff in Melanesia, which teaches you common humanity and a bit of respect across cultures, and that there are different views, you know, and some of them are shocking to you, but not to other people, and some things we do are shocking to them, but not to us, you know. Mm. 
And that sort of stuff is really important, I think. Um, but it was also um, being being climate commissioner was really helpful because I just get to I got to meet so many Australians from across the board. You know, coal workers in Queensland, you know, farmers in New South Wales, and that was great. Just listening, listening mm. to people, hearing what they got to say, and I've come away with it or with a very deep, in fact, an unshakable respect in the basic goodness of humanity. You know even though it's expressed in different ways and different things happen. But there is a fundamental decency in people that is very reliable, I think. I have to say it was incredibly heartening to hear Tim Flannery talk about his unshakable faith in humanity. And we felt like this brought us to our last question, which was basically... With all that you know about this changing climate, how do you sustain hope in these seemingly crapo times? To me, it's, um, what can I say, climate change isn't a destination, it's a journey, you know, and it's a journey where, yes, you cross certain tipping points, but then you haven't crossed others, you know, Mm. and there's always the opportunity to make things better for future generations, you know. So I, I just keep on trying to do that. You realise you the worst moments come when you realise you've lost a major opportunity, like after the Copenhagen meeting. We knew then that was the last moment where we could address climate change just by cutting emissions. And we'd have to develop drawdown and all the rest of it, which is just another challenge you don't really need, you know. Um, so, yeah, that, they're pretty depressing moments, but there's no point living in depression. You've got to get up and have a go, you know. I just see it as a continuity. It's an exploration, you know. It's what it is whether in other cultures, in biology, in the past, in deep time with fossils, through to the future. It's all just part of a big exploration for me. So, mm. so the explorers is pretty central to what I was thinking. Yeah. Do you think that um, the pandemic and, and the results of kind of like grounding the planes and um, do you think that has been a good uh, example of, of the fact that we can actually s- stop stop things and stop um, carbon emissions if, if there is kind of that pressing need and human lives yeah. are actually at stake in the moment? It's a demonstration that uh, that we can act if we want to. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we shall see where this is all going to go. I, I think the thing that has been most instructive to me looking at the pandemic is just the steps you have to take to deal with it. So the first step is to stop the spread. You know, and for climate change, it's like that's like cutting emissions. It's a first mm. urgent matter. If you don't get that right, you won't get anything right. Mm. You've got to really cut, just cut the spread, you know. Mm. Second thing is you've got to have an emergency room, you know, to deal with the casualties. And yeah. the Great Barrier Reef is going to be a casualty, already is. You know, um, yeah, people who are suffering heat stress in remote communities are going to be a casualty. People who are losing their houses to sea level rise are going to be casualties. You've yeah. got to have the emergency room to make sure you look after everyone, you know. Yeah. The coal workers who are going to lose their jobs will be casualties, but we've got to just make sure we take care of all of that. And then you've got to look for the vaccine, you know, and that's a long and very expensive process. Um, In climate terms, that's all about drawdown now because we've gone too far. We've got to get some of the gas out of the air. Mm -hmm. So that's the area I've been working on for the last probably six or seven years pretty intensively. Mm -hmm. And are you looking, I mean, I'm just reading very vaguely about that, but mostly about sort of things like the effects of seaweed and how to reabsorb. Is that kind of the main areas that you're yeah, investing in or are you looking at every possible? I'm there's sure. very few scalable options, you know. Yeah. 
So there's only three really that I've concentrated on, which is silicate rocks, seaweed, and um, uh, what's called direct air capture or industrial processes for drawing CO2 out of the atmosphere. Okay. Yeah. Um, you did a book called Sunlight and Seaweed, was it? That's or? right, yeah, which yeah. was about exploring two technologies that weren't there yet but I thought we needed to look at a bit more closely. Yeah. Mm. Again, you're you're using the word exploring. Great, it's like yeah. I think you're, you're <laughs> he's, he's digging down it. into that word. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, yeah. It's real good. It is my whole life. Yeah. <laughs> it really is. So no, I, yeah. I think that's that's been, that's been such a huge like takeaway. I think for us because I think like like in our show like. Uh, we, 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 it's much more of a poetic kind of uh, reflection mm. of us going like we don't want to call Burke an explorer only because no. like it just conjures up so much but if we can like start to reframe what that means and yeah. like, that, that kind of does shape every discussion we've ever had in a different light that's right yeah he's more a marathon runner than a, than a yeah. <laughs> yeah. Kind of a yeah or just explorer. a jerk it's hard to he not and to here we are anything. back in our very comfortable place of just slagging off Burke after an amazing conversation with Tim Flannery about the story of Burke and Wills, about his experiences with first contact, about climate change and how to maintain hope for the future. And uh, I just want to thank you for joining me on this adventure. It's been really fun for me to host my first podcast. I hope Tom likes it. I'm sure he'll have some feedback. Yeah. The, the only question that I think that which might be construed, which I think he salvaged, is because you were like, he was just like, yeah, you know, difference in cultures. And you were like, yeah, similarly, otters seem nice, but they're really violent. <laughs> I was like, you can't compare like an Australian, like, like sorry, a human civilization to like. Like I said, I think Tom's going to have some feedback, but I think I'm going to give the last words to Tim Flannery and allow him to express just how close Birkenwell's got to reaching the tippy top of Australia. If you, could, if you could see that tree that he gets to up in the Gulf Country, so I've been up to that, you know, and had a look at it, yeah. the, the, the furthest north point. Yep. It's nowhere near the ocean. There's no side of the ocean. That's just yeah, 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 yeah. It's like they're kilometres away. Yeah, it's like... And that like was yeah, we're close enough. Yeah, this will do. Like, Jesus, it's so emblematic of the whole thing, you know. Yeah, this yeah, is yeah. their <laughs> ultimate fool. It's like a place <laughs> in the middle of nowhere. You know? <laughs> so. At least they were at the southernmost point of the Cape of York because, you know, yeah, they, they yeah. did probably get as far as they would have gone. But yeah, I'm sure. But it's so when you go there, it's such a, like, you can I can imagine... Sitting around the campfire saying, This is it. This is it. Yeah. <laughs> you need to get to have a swim. No, I couldn't even have a swim. That's yeah. right. Maybe you Becky would say, Could we have a swim? Some of the Birkenwills films, like they actually depict them jumping in the ocean and going, like, Oh, finally. And like, Oh, no. So far from that. It's just like, Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, don't tell that story. That's no. Thanks so much for joining us. This has been Mount Hopeless, the podcast. My name's Alana Stone, and we're also hosted by Tom. Hogan and this week featured the amazing guest Tim Flannery. Tune in for more episodes and keep your eyes and ears peeled because hopefully soon Marangong Theatre will be putting on Mount Hopeless the Musical.
Before we finish up, just for some bonus content, I'm introducing you to our sound designer for the show. Hello, Nicole. <laughs> Hi. How are you going? I'm good. How are you? I'm all right. I just got a dog, so I'm like very happy. Oh, <laughs> lovely. This is Nicole Smead. She's a poet and musician who, amongst her solo work, is a vocalist for the Sydney ensemble Hinterland. I'll link to their new album, Seven Tales, in the show notes, which I think is out this month. So we don't really have a theme song for this podcast, so we thought we'd just ask Nicole. Great. That sounds wonderful. It's very good. We had a quick chat about what we need, but in short, the podcast is called Mount Hopeless, named after a behemoth set of mountains in South Australia that loomed over Birkenwells in their final days. So what if we created a sound or some evocative tones that represent the mountains themselves? And one of the great things about Nicole is that she's been learning to write in language. So I was trying to figure out the language of Mount Hopeless. But tracing language to a specific place is really hard because they're not exactly things that you can easily map. You, you probably know more about that than me in based in your work. So. Oh, yeah. And look, the boundaries that you find on maps for language places are contested anyway. Yeah. Um, and they're not as clear cut as what a map would like to tell you. <laughs> yeah, of course. A nice, thick, sharpie line. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. On this side of the Sharpie, they speak this. And on that side, <laughs> they speak this. And yeah. There is no yeah, okay. That. Because is it Darwell that you, like, what What do you try? Are you trying to learn more? I am yeah. trying to learn more. So I have been working in Gumia Darwell, which is the southern dialect of Darwell language, mm -hmm. um, but also work in Darwell, um, mainly because I was born on Darwell country and I live here now and mm. I'm trying to pass down, well, I'm trying to learn about the country that I am a custodian of, you know, born of yeah. this place. I I am now a custodian of this place and um, also want to pass down that knowledge to my children who are living here and I think it's a respectful way to live, to be able to call the trees and the mountains and the landscape um, that we are on every day by their proper names. Yeah. Oh, Curly described it as like, She's like, I wanted to learn the language because at the start, like, I had this connection. I didn't really understand it. And yeah. she sort of envisaged having this language would, like, open up this relationship. But what she sort of ended up finding was that a language just allowed her just to give name to the things that she already felt. Yeah. But it strengthens also that feeling that you already have. Um, mm. And it embeds it in you more deeply. Um, yeah. But I am also very slowly trying to learn more of my ancestral um, language, um, the Katang language, which is from the mid-north coast of New South Wales. But I, it's hard because I, I don't live there and, you know, language is such a um, an oral and an oral thing. Um, you know, I've got a book and I can learn it from a book, but it's very different to, you know, learning how to speak it and learning the sounds and the way it's put together. And But that's a slow process and that's okay because everything is a journey. <laughs> yeah, no, of course. Yeah. Well, that sounds... So are you... Do you yeah, so you're, you're actually trying to learn two languages at once, sort of? Uh... Kind of, yeah. I Yes. And so the way that I'm doing that at the moment is that I've been writing 
um, songs in Darawal and Gumia Darawal, and I'm trying to write some poetry in Gatang with my diction, my big thick um, language dictionary. Yes, because I think well, that's kind of um, how I can access that language right now. I've got I've got it, you know, written down, and so it makes sense to try and write it down before I can go and speak it or sing it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, so as the name suggests, Mount Hopeless is a pretty desolate place. But we didn't want to just take this name as our only understanding of it, mostly because it was named by an Englishman, Edward Eyre, who, at some point, was also appointed the governor of Jamaica. Now, that's a whole other layer of weird colonial bullshit. Regardless, we can't really visit right now to see for ourselves. But luckily, many people have been there before that can shed some artistic stimulus. For instance, the Adnya Mathana people call it Mayuru Mitha Vambara, which has a very clear translation. Dirt dug out of a hole by a plague rat. Whoa. I was going to say, is it a sacred place? That don't sound like one. A dirt dug out of a hole by a... A plague rat. Plague Even rat. like the, the explorer air called it cheerless and hopeless indeed. Like no, there's nothing here. It just stops us from doing anything it's like no one likes his place which i think it makes it very powerful <laughs> yeah wow what sound does that have yeah it's just definitely in a minor key <laughs> <I think. laughs> all right i'll have a play with that that'd be this so week. good thanks so much and within a couple of days she'd created us a sting and that sting will take us out so thanks for listening to mount hopeless